The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for coming tonight. For people who are new, uh, the program goes until 9 o'clock, and we ask people to stay until 9 o'clock. Sometimes people, for whatever reason, need to leave or... But if at all possible, stay through the discussion until 9 o'clock. That way, people asking questions aren't being interrupted by people leaving. So, most of you know we've been uh, looking at this book by Ajahn Chah, collection of his talks to monks and lay people. Ajahn Chah was a great, well-known Buddhist monk and meditation master of the last century. But before going on to the next chapter, I want to just check in around our meditation instructions I've been giving the last month or so and distinguishing between directed meditation practice and non-directed meditation practice and see if there are any questions about this. It's important because, you know, generally we're reading and hearing different instructions for meditation practice and it's important to understand maybe the spectrum of practice. So this is just one spectrum to you can hold in your mind, and it will help guide, you can use it to help guide yourself in your meditation practice. So at one end of the spectrum, uh, we're specifically directing the attention to particular object or objects. We do that in loving kindness or compassion practice. We do it in the more formal mindfulness breathing practice. There are any number of directed meditation practices, many, many different styles, even within the Buddhist tradition. And it's useful to see what fruit we get from training the mind in this way, directing the attention over and over again. I remember once some talk that Jack Cornfield gave around this. He said it's like training a puppy. You know, when you have a puppy indoors and it doesn't know about peeing and where it should pee, you pick it up and you put it on the newspaper. And then it wanders off and you pick it up and you put it on the newspaper. And you do that over and over again. And you don't get angry at the puppy. You just pick it up and you put it on the newspaper. And after a while, the puppy begins to learn, you know, you don't pee on the carpet, you don't pee over here, you pee outside or you pee on the newspaper. I don't know if people, I've never had a dog, maybe you don't do that, <laughs> but it makes a good story, and you get the idea. I mean, it's the same with a cat. And so, part of the uh, art of a directed meditation practice is not thinking the starting over is a problem, it's actually what it's all about. It's a willingness to start over again. The mind wanders and you bring it back. The mind wanders and you bring it back. And it's not a failure when the mind wanders. Well, of course the mind is going to wander. All day long, for such, you know, for however many decades, we've just allowed the mind to wander, to think what it wants to think, to imagine, to do this, to do that. And now all of a sudden we're saying, honey, there's just this one thing we want you to do now. You know, just know the breath as it's coming in, and know the breath as it's going out. And it's a profound letting go. I mean, the whole path is about renunciation. So when we're directing, using a directed meditation practice, 
Don't think of it in terms of an attainment. I'm trying to attain that perfection of being with the breath and not wavering. I mean, in a sense, that's true. But it's more useful to think of it as this profound letting go. Not so much that I want to be with the breath and not lose it, but more that I'm willing to let go of thinking about tomorrow. I'm willing to let go of thinking about yesterday. I'm willing to let go of that yucky feeling in my back right now. I just know the next in-breath. And to keep remembering the in-breath from the very beginning of the in-breath all the way through the end of that in-breath. And then from the very beginning of the out-breath all the way through the end of that out-breath. Just reflect on what a profound letting go that is. Our lives are so interesting and tragic and difficult and messy. You know, it's so compelling to think of our lives And if your life's not very compelling, then you want to think about your partner's life, or you want to think about some character in a book you're reading's life, or a movie you've seen recently. One of the things I find a lot uh, when I'm on retreat, it's like every movie I've seen since my last long retreat will arise in my mind. Like, whatever happened in the movie that I didn't fully digest in the moment because it was intense, you know, or provocative in some way, then it reappears. It, like, isn't fully digested, that particular image or, you know, that particular content, and there it is again in the mind. And we have to keep saying, but, you know, now's not the time, honey. Now's the time to practice simplicity, just simply knowing the in-breath, simply knowing the out-breath. And by being willing to start over and over again, the mind, the heart, learns how to put down the world for a period of time. We're not putting down the world forever. It's not like we're never going to think about the past or future or never worry about this or that. It just means for this period of time, the mind knows how to really let go of that. It's really okay to put it all down. It's so much easier and uh, more creative to pick up the world once it's been put down, to get involved in, you know, our thoughts about things. But if we never put it down, on the one hand, we're bored and exhausted, but we can't let go. I'm going to think about it one more time, one more time, one more time. It's not productive, it's not creative, and we end up just sort of spinning our wheels, thinking the same thoughts with slight variations over and over again. But if you can really put down the world for a period of time, It's like you're reborn. Literally, it feels like you're reborn. So, because we can't put down the whole world initially, it's just asking too much, the way we practice putting down the world is we give ourselves completely, wholeheartedly, to a very simple activity, like knowing the breath coming in, knowing the breath going out. You can do this in all kinds of ways in your life. You can give yourself completely to brushing your teeth, where there's no part of the mind no part of the heart and mind that's not engaged, not fully engaged in the brushing of the teeth. And then to do that, you have to completely disengage from everything else. You even have to forget that you're a human being. Because even thinking, I'm here brushing my teeth, or I'm here breathing in and breathing out, that maintains that sense of separation. So with mindfulness of breathing or whatever kind of directed meditation practice you might take up as a training, you know, you could 
use this word of emerging, like we're giving ourselves to that exclusively. It's an exclusive practice. Where on the other hand, and I'll talk about this in a moment, open attention practice is an inclusive practice. Now, even though mindfulness of breathing and other directed practices are exclusive, meaning that we're directing the attention to an object, to one thing, we're not actively excluding other things. So there may be, you know, obviously there will be sounds, for example, maybe they're loud, maybe they're very quiet, and you're not actively excluding, like you don't practice not hearing sounds. It's like that joke that people used to say, don't think of a pink elephant. You know, and what do we do? We think of the pink elephant. So it's like, don't hear those sounds. Pay no attention to those sensations in the body. Well then, you know, it it just highlights it. It brings those experiences into the foreground of attention. So it's not by excluding hearing or excluding the other sensations in the body or excluding the thoughts. It's about being interested wholeheartedly interested in the object of meditation. You know, so, you know, ideally we would choose, if we're going to use a directed meditation practice, we choose an object we like, that the mind likes, that it wants to pay attention to, that it's willing to show up and see and open to and feel. And we actually, you know, one of the Skills, one of the qualities of mind that gets strengthened on the way to moments of being fully with that meditation object is that we can, that interest isn't given. We can cultivate interest. You know, it's like people who have these hobbies. You think, how did you get interested in collecting buttons from presidential campaigns? Or, you know, these weird things that people collect or get involved in. And they're, like, for them, they're completely fascinated with it. And for other people, you know, well, they're just rocks. That, how did, how do we get interested? Well, we practice being interested. You know, and the more we get interested in something, the more we see. It's like, when you start getting interested in rocks, or get interested in birds, or get interested in fabrics, or, I mean, anything goes. It's like, you know so much more, you know what to look for. You know, like, the whole world of diversity in that particular area. It's fascinating. Everything is inherently fascinating if you give yourself to it completely. What it wouldn't be fascinating? I mean, the world, the sort of movement of life, of things, it's amazing. Everything is amazing. We're just not paying attention to, to most of it, so it doesn't seem very special. Same with the breath. Once you start paying attention to the breath, you start to get interested in it. It's like you're understanding nature. It's not the breath, you know, that I've been doing all day long, or all life long, just another breath. I mean, we could tell ourselves a story that would make the breath seem very boring, but that's a story. That's not actually the breath. The actual movement of the breath isn't uh, essentially boring. Because even though you might get to know the breath. What we don't know is, we don't know what full absorption with the breath is. So there's really two things that we're experiencing as we practice mindfulness of breathing. One is, we're just noticing the qualities of this physical phenomena of breathing in 
and breathing out. You know, if you're here at the nostrils feeling the breath, then you're just really getting in all the experience of touching and all the little intricacies of that touching and then going out the touching. The coolness of the breath going in and the relative warmth of the breath going out. And that's just the beginning. You know, the, the sort of physicality, the sort of physical sensations of the breath, you know, they are, they can be very, very subtle. And that level of subtlety is just unknown to us right now. But the other thing that we get to know, as with any directed meditation practice, we get to experience what it is for the mind to unify around that knowing. Because the mind's not doing anything else. Mostly our mind is scattered and fragmented. But as we just bring ourselves, bring the attention to the breath, it begins to unify. So we begin to experience a unified mind, a concentrated mind, a one-pointed mind. And that's, for most of us initially, of course, it's a unique experience. And it's really a mind-blowing experience. It's like we had no idea that this kind of happiness and joy and bliss was available simply by gathering the attention. I mean, we've had, all of us, just through chance, have had moments of unification where the experience we were in was so engaging that the mind really collected, unified in that experience. But we always miss it because we think it was so delightful, so amazing, because of that particular experience. We didn't associate it with the mind that was concentrated. That's what made it so amazing. Did you see that sunset? You know, you could have 100 people there, 99 would be bored, but one person is going to be completely enraptured with the sunset. But it isn't that the sunset is so special. It's the mind is unified. It isn't doing anything else but being present. And so what's being experienced is that sunset with a unified mind. It's like the difference between sort of observing, you know, a droplet of water with our normal eyesight and observing it with an electron microscope. I mean, a whole new world opens up. It literally is an altered state, seeing the molecules and the, and the atomic dynamic, as opposed to, oh, it's just a drop. It look, looks like every other drop. Or even with a snowflake, you know, you could be in a winter snowstorm, it's like snowflakes. But, you know, if you get out your magnifying glass and the light's just right and you see what a snowflake is, it's like a whole world opens up. And again, it isn't even the snowflake as much as the absorption of the mind and the unity of the mind and that experience. It's an actual experience of the mind as being whole. We basically only know the mind as a fragmented thing. But when the mind is no longer fragmented, it feels different. And so this, one of the real advantages to gaining skill with directed meditation practices is it's a very healing practice. It heals the mind. And we feel refreshed after a deep sit in that way because the mind has experienced unification and it feels refreshed. It's ready to go out into the world. And also we maintain that, sort of for a period of time at least, we maintain a sense of quiet or stillness 
even though we're back into the world of conversations and seeing and doing, there's a background calm, back, background tranquility or stillness that tends to stay. And the more we practice or train in this way, the longer it stays. And it, then it begins to change how we are in the messy world. Because it's different being in the messy world with a fragmented, scattered mind than it is with a mind that has some resonant stillness or peace in the background. Where in a sense, the ego is just less needy. Does it need anything from the experiences? Because it's feeling this inner contentment. It's happy. And so we relate to visual objects and other sensory experiences with less attachment. In this way, you can think of moments of, of deep concentration as temporary liberation. Because, because of that inner joy that happens when the mind is unified, the mind, that joy, extinguishes craving for periods of time. It's not a permanent freedom, but it's a temporary freedom. There's so much contentment that the mind is free of wanting things to be other than the, the way they are right now. It's just completely content. And this is a unique experience for most of us. We don't know that experience of being fully content. We don't even realize how discontent we are. It's because it's just sort of standard operating procedure to be discontent. We just move through life always wanting things to be a little bit different than they are. Looking forward to this. Ever since a few days ago, I saw an article about the new electric car, Tesla, or something like that. Maybe some of you have heard of it. And uh, now I want it. Before I knew about it, I didn't want it. But now, it's like, oh, that's cool. You know, that would look nice in my, I don't have a driveway, but in the street in front of my house. That would be fun to drive. I could be both cool and, you know, doing what's right. So, we don't even realize how many of those little things are eating away at our mind, you know, that we're holding, like how it could be even better. Yeah, sure, I'm happy, but God, it would be nice to win the lottery, or God, it would be nice to, you know, whatever, be in shape. <laughs> Except I don't want to do it. I just want to be in shape, you know. I remember when. So, there are many ways that I mentioned, like even that practice we did at the beginning of the sit, where we were just repeating some phrases. Some of you know this is a, a practice, the loving-kindness phrases. This is another way to practice directed meditation, where we're over and over again directing the attention to a particular object, like loving-kindness or the sensations of the breath. Now, the real key here, or you could say the shadow of directed meditation practice, and you might even be able to guess, like, what's, what unwholesome tendency tends to creep in the mind when we're doing directed meditation practice? Maybe I'll just ask, anybody have a sense, like, what is it, what is our habit when we're doing, when we're directing the attention over and over again in a particular way? What habit generally gets triggered? Yeah, Owen. Yeah, 
controlling or over-efforting, like some kind of unskillful efforting, like trying to control, trying to fix, because it feels appropriate. Well, here, I've got an agenda. You know, I'm, my agenda is to bring my attention back to the brat. And so, let's bring out the big guns, you know, so we, we can justify shame, we can justify basically all kinds of wrong effort to succeed, because it always feels like the important thing is the goal, get the attention on the breath. And it doesn't matter, we use any means available to do that, even, you know, if they're counterproductive, that's, that's the real shame. So, if, whenever you're, we're doing directed meditation practices, we need to have a, a real clear eye on the quality of efforting. Are we using effort, unnecessary effort, effort that's making the mind and body tight? Because like I mentioned in the guided sit tonight, the only real effort we need is the effort of remembering. We just need to remember the breath is coming in. We're keeping the breath in mind. That's all. We're not controlling the breath or fixing the breath. And as I mentioned in the guided sit, it's not even that we're taking our attention and putting it on the breath. And, you know, I'm sure you notice this tendency, I certainly do, when you're focusing on the breath here. It's almost like you want to look at the point that you're paying attention to. But we don't need the visual fix in order to feel the sensations of the breath going in and out. It's just a habit. We just have a habit of wanting to look at what we're doing. But we don't need to look at Like people, when they're doing walking meditation, they get backaches because they're looking down on their feet because they find it easier to feel the lifting and placing of each step if they're looking at their feet. But we don't need to look at our feet or imagine our feet in order to feel the lifting and placing of our feet. And it's the same thing with breathing. If you're doing loving-kindness phrases, you might feel the need to sort of formulate the words in your mouth as if you're actually mouthing the words. So there's a lot of these tendencies of over-efforting that we have to gently, with a lot of forgiveness and patience, tease out of the habit of the mind so that it becomes more and more effortless how much effort does it actually take to hear my voice right now? You don't need to make a personal effort to hear the sound of my voice. And in exactly the same way, you don't need to make a personal effort to feel the breath coming in. You just need to make the effort of remembering it. So there are many things that could be known, and we're remembering to know the breath coming in. And now we're remembering to know the breath going out. Or you can use that image that Ajahn Kunadamo shared when he was teaching here once. Uh, he'll be coming back in just a couple weeks to teach on the weekend, I think of the 7th, Friday night the 7th, and Saturday the 8th of December. But anyway, he uses this nice image of instead of putting our attention on the breath, and I mentioned this in the guide, he said, you just relax back. In a sense, we're relaxing in the space of the present moment, in the space of the mind, and in the space of knowing the breath just arises there. Because that's actually where the breath is known. It's known in the space of the mind. And the same way right now, the sound of my voice is arising in the space of the mind. So you don't have to like try to hear Mark. It's more like relaxing into the sensitivity of the mind. This great space of sensitivity 
that's what the mind is. The mind is a sensitive space that's sensitive to sounds, it's sensitive to thoughts, it's sensitive to sensations, it's sensitive to sights and smells and tastes. So it's like trusting that space and trusting that in that space, whatever the breath is, it's going to appear there. Because that's what the breath does. That's what any sensation does. It appears in the space of the mind. So keep that in mind when you do directed practice. Now, let's talk about undirected practice for a few minutes, and then I'll open it up and be nice to hear your own experiences with meditation, both with directed and undirected practice, non-directed practice. So most different lineages in Buddhist and Buddhism have some form of a undirected, non-directed meditation practice. Because at some point, the, the practice goes in the, in the direction of, of uh, inclusivity, of fearless inclusivity. And you see, this really supports daily life practice. Because it doesn't really make sense to have a specific meditation object that we're redirecting our attention to all day long. But it does make sense to practice with open attention all day long. Because open attention is really grounded in this principle that mindfulness doesn't care what it's knowing. It doesn't really matter what we're aware of. What matters is that the mind is aware that it's aware, and that the mind realizes that what it's aware of is just nature. It's not self. It's not personal, actually. I mean, that doesn't mean we can't have an experience that feels personal. But that sense of it feels personal, like if you insult me, if you get up in a huff and walk out the room, I'm going to take that personally, initially, for sure. What did I say? But that experience, like, of what did I say, that feeling of taking it personally, that also can, mindfulness can know that too, right? What is it that mindfulness can't know? There's no external or internal object that mindfulness can't know. It's like a mirror that just reflects what's going on in front of it. The mirror has no agenda. It doesn't really care what happens in front of it. It's just going to effortlessly reflect it. So open attention meditation practice is like that. We're learning, and it's a training, and it's actually in some ways a, a, a much more challenging training than the directed meditation practice. Because it's easy for the ego to get behind directed meditation practice. You just tell me something to do, and I'll do it. That's kind of the ego knows that business. You know, okay, I can get involved. I know what I'm doing. I know when I'm doing well because I'm with the breath. I know when I'm a bad meditator when I'm not with the breath. The side, the sort of shadow to open attention is it's very easy just to space out or get distracted and not realize that you're distracted because we don't have a particular object. So we don't know when we're not with our meditation because remember, the work of open attention meditation practice is to know what the mind is aware of but it's not enough to be conscious, but there's an awareness that this is what's being known. So like right now, you're hearing a talk, or you're doing whatever you're doing, if you're not listening. But if you're hearing this, I guess you are listening. So you're hearing my words, but now notice you can be reflective, you can be aware 
that you're hearing the word. So there's the words that are being known, and there also can be this mindful awareness that hearing is happening, and that comprehending of these words, that's what's happening now. Comprehending the, these words is what's being known. Now, the last piece of open attention practice, so as you're hearing the words, and now also aware that you're hearing the words, you're also aware that this activity, all of this activity, is just nature. That you don't have to take it personally. It's just phenomena being known. Or as Manindichu, one of the early teachers who trained people like Joseph Goldstein, said, you know, empty phenomena rolling on. It's just impersonal phenomena. You know, hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking rolling on. These phenomena, these six sense-gate phenomena, right? The five physical senses and thinking in the mind. These are the six ways that the world experience is known. And they're just rolling on according to causes and conditions. And they're being known. And it's your own mystery, like known by what? Because whatever we imagine, that's just a thought being known. We can't really know the knowing. We know it's happening, right? But we can't know it, because whatever we know is just one of those phenomena being known. It's the object, not the subject. So open attention, you're probably getting the flavor. It's very much of a wisdom practice. It's, it's developing the insight into the impersonal, ephemeral, changing nature of phenomena. And one of the other things we notice so clearly in open attention practice is whenever we have an agenda, whenever the mind is trying to make something happen, it's tight. The body-mind gets tight. And it just starts to show up in open attention practice. You might have noticed it that as, right when I suggested we make the transition from a directed mindfulness of breathing practice, and I suggested, if you want, you could do open attention practice now. You know, and there you were, like a deer in headlights, or there we all were, like a deer in headlights. Like, oh, I can't go to the breath, because I'm not supposed to do a directed meditation. And it's like, and we realize that here, that suffering, that tightness, is because the mind was identified with experience. It wasn't taking the deer in headlights as just nature being known. It was like, I'm not doing it right. It was very personal, right? I want to do the open attention practice right. And so there was tightness there. And so these are called the three characteristics. And they're just uh, three overlapping. I mean, they really uh, represent what we call in Buddhism Dhamma, the way it is. Insights Insights into the way it is. And the Buddha talks about this insight into the way it is in terms of three facets. Insight into dukkha, like how tension, stress arises whenever we're caught in taking things personally, take, uh, caught in self-view. And uh, anicca, the ephemeral changing nature, and anatta, the impersonal nature. So these three characteristics characterize the way it is. The way that it is when we're practicing this open attention practice in particular, and we're sort of have some momentum where the mind is aware that it's aware. It's aware of what the mind is knowing. It's aware that different objects of awareness are coming and going. 
Things are being known, sounds are being heard, sensations are being felt, thoughts are being known. Right? That ongoing flow. And the mind starts to recognize, oh, everything's changing. Whatever phenomena is being known, it's already changing. It's already becoming something else. There's always something else arising. Nothing is static. It notices that ephemeral nature. It notices whenever it takes things personally, tries to define things, make things static, we get broke burn. Now we call it dukkha, or stress, or tightness in the body and mind. But when we just let things be what they are, you feel the release of that stress. It's a little release, or a little uh, awakening, freedom. So we see, and the more we see, the more we can relax with the changing flow of experience. You know, like, one way you might describe open attention practice is, you know, aching, 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 hearing, hearing, seeing, tension, tension, thinking, thinking. It's just like a river, just one thing leading to another, one experience being known, another experience being known, another experience being known. And before any experience can be fully grasp or turn into something personal, so it's like sand through the fingers. It's already morphing into something else, changing into something else. There's always a new experience bursting forth. The more quiet and clear the mind is, the more obvious that is. That experiences are bursting forth, and in order for an experience to burst forth, the previous experience has to disappear, fall away, evaporate. It's gone. It's like, where did today go? You know, 4 p.m. Where is that? Whatever that moment was has completely disappeared. And this moment, you know, 8.39, it's just slipping through our fingers. There's nothing we can do about it. And now all of a sudden, 8.40 is arising. Except it's happening, you know, not by second or minute, but, you know, these little, these sort of minute, Moments of experience, many, many per second. So open attention begins to reveal the changing nature, the impersonal nature, and how stress arises whenever the mind resists seeing the impersonal and changing nature of experience. When we come into alignment with the changing and impersonal nature of experience, there is the joy and release, the ease of being in alignment with the way things are. And when the mind is caught, identified with its ideas about things, its concepts about things, on some level, whether we're aware of it or not, the mind and body will be tight and be burdened by that attachment. Now, even though I'm talking about these two practices sort of as two ends of a spectrum, it's important to understand that as you get fluent, you really understand what directed meditation is, you've really played and worked with open attention practice, formally in your sits and informally all day long, you really have a sense. Then you're able, then you really begin to learn the middle ground, and you learn how to take these two different ways and all the in-between ways of working with your mind as just a handful of skillful means. And you're using them at different times. For example, you might be out in daily life and practicing open attention where you're 
mind to be aware that you're aware. You're aware of what the mind is knowing. So you have this reflective quality all day long. You're not just aware that what you're doing, but you're aware that this is what's being known, that this is what's happening. And you're also maintaining as best you can this reflection that it's just nature happening. It's just causes and conditions unfolding. My own personality is part of that nature that's unfolding. The reactivity that I see or observe in my personality when different triggers arise, that's also nature. The reactivity in others that I observe, in my partner, in my friends, that's also nature. Weather's nature. The sound of the traffic and movement of traffic, that's nature. So we're observing this, we're aware, maintaining this reflection, but maybe all of a sudden the different objects that are arising in our open attention practice get really provocative and really trigger some deeper patterns of reactivity in us. And we're starting to get caught up in fear or anxiety, right? And we might just naturally bring our attention to a particular phrase, you know, a one for a few seconds or maybe in a few minutes, do a one-pointed directed meditation, like, uh, you know, we might repeat the mantra, everybody's doing the best they can. No, really, everybody's doing the best they can. I'm doing the best I can right now. She's doing the best she can right now. You know? And we're really focusing on that particular object. That's an idea, right? But you can use an idea as your object of meditation, just like you can use the sensations at the nostril as an object of meditation. Or another person in that moment of starting to get overwhelmed and not able to maintain an open attention practice, seeing things as nature naturally unfolding, they might bring their attention to the breath for a few seconds and just stabilize their calm, their attention with the breath. You just feel the breath coming in. Feel the breath going out. For other people, just open the hearing kernel. So, there's this real nimbleness. We want to be able to move be- between the two. Same thing, if you're doing a one-pointed practice, but all of a sudden, you know, something big happens and somebody walks in the meditation room where you're doing your practice and says... Hey, you know, well, you just want to do open attention practice in that moment. You're aware of your own reactivity. You're aware of seeing the person. Maybe you love the person. Maybe you're upset at the person. You just see it as objects being known. Oh, this is what's being known. Oh, this is what's happening now. It's just stuff. Just impersonal stuff coming and going. And your own response, whether it's a beautiful, skillful response or an unskillful response, you just see, oh, that's being known. So that's really the direction we're going. And just let me repeat. So when you're doing directed practice, be on the lookout, very interested in the kind of effort you're using and whether the effort is off in any way. When you're doing open attention practice, you want to maintain the, the sort of integrity of the practice with this reflection on nature, on the nature of things. There has to be a, a, a very active investigation. Otherwise, you will stop practicing. You'll think you're practicing because you're sitting still, like you're in your formal meditation, with your eyes open, maybe doing op- open attention practice. And you can practice either with your eyes open or closed with open attention. But let's say you're practicing with your eyes open. And you can feel like you're meditating, but you're just thinking. You know, you're just sort of drifting or in a trance or... But the only way you know you're practicing 
when you're doing open attention practices, there's an authentic, pure interest. The mind is authentically interested in the nature of things. It really is interested in the very nature of things. And you can use these three characteristics to help shape that interest. Are you interested in the changing nature of the phenomena that are being known? Are you interested in the impersonal nature of the phenomena that are being known? Are you interested in how tension and release unfold lawfully? When the mind takes things personally, there's tension. When the mind is just letting things be, there's the experience of freedom or release. Are you interested in that? And that's how you maintain the integrity of open attention practice. You have to be interested. So we have about 15 minutes. It would be nice to hear people share from their own experiences, formal practice, informal during the day practice. And, of course, any questions about what I've said tonight or just generally about your practice? Yeah, Ellen. <laughs> the cabin in my mind. Yeah, it points to one of the deepest insights in practice, this understanding, this awakening to how impersonal everything is. And so one of the manifestations of that impersonal nature is that what our mind is, is a function of where the mind is. So, when you go home and hang out with your parents, if you're still alive, then who you are is a function of where you are. You're a different, you have a different mind. You're a different person in that environment. And then if I pick you up and put you with your friends, then once again you're a different person. And if I pick you up and I put you in the Mall of America, different person. I pick you up and I put you in a wilderness, you know, and then I bring a wolf into the wilderness. And it's like who we are is coming right out of the conditions of the moment. Normally, our thought is that, I don't know, there's a core me, and then I do this when I'm over here, and then I do that when I'm over there. But when we look carefully, it's not that way. It's like who we are really is coming right out of that situation. So in terms of meditation, when you come to Common Ground, the memories that people have of this place and then just the look of the place, and then being around other people, it's like all of that shapes what arises in terms of your personality, in terms of the different qualities of mind in this place. And then when we're at home, and we've got our bills on the table, and, you know, that's the bed where I slept with my lover, and, you know, all these things are right there, and then we're a different human being. And, you know, 
different thoughts, different experiences will arise because of that. So, initially, it's really important to take advantage of that. So, if you want to build up your practice, find places that support the qualities you need in that practice. One of the reasons people like to practice in the woods or in the wilderness or in more natural settings is that the relative absence of human drama makes it easier for the mind to get simple. But if we put ourselves right in the middle of human drama, it's not easy at all. Did you have another question, Eric? Directed? Yeah, fingers controlled. That's too negative. Directed. Yeah, but you could go back and forth. Remember, you really want all of these tools along the spectrum. So let's say you're in that situation where you're being forced to move. Sometimes the right kind of medicine for your mind will be to do a very directed practice. Okay, honey, let's just do one thing. Right now, I'm just going to make these four phone calls. And you're just one-pointed doing that. You're not letting your mind think about the future and all the unknowns and all the other things you need to do. You're just... You're redirecting your attention to just doing these few things, just this one thing, right? But other times, you want to take that really vast view. So there you are in this crisis of needing to leave your place and find a new place. But you take off, you, for a while, when your mind can do it, you take up this vast view. And the, all the dramas, the internal churning and emotional movement you have here, you just see that as just the movement of nature. And the great, you know, you see that landlord who's kicking you out and all the people you're, who are interviewing you about new places, you just see the sort of like this great vast movement of energy, of personality, of causes and conditions. The soup, the great soup. And none of it's personal. It's all this interdependent soup. And all of the choices you need to make and the, oh, you've got to be careful about that, all of that is part of the soup. It isn't a personal burden that Ellen has to get through. That's open attention practice. Sometimes that's just the medicine we need. Sometimes we, we can't practice that way. And so then we give ourselves a more directed practice. Okay, don't look at the big picture. Just do one thing you know you need to do and do it wholeheartedly. Give yourself completely do it. When you're done, do one more thing you need to do. And then when that's done, do one more thing that you need to do. And either you're going to die or you're going to survive that there's a certain joy, there's a certain ease that comes from just doing what you can do. There's a satisfaction. Well, at least I made that phone call. And I did it wholeheartedly. I did it as best I could. And I can check that off my list. And that, so you, you really want to sort of be able to use both ends. Other thoughts that come to mind? Yeah, I did.
Yeah. Well, it's a great example of this nimbleness. So, because you're doing open attention practice, you know, you can catch that. You see that there is a charge, you know, and because that's that you're using those three characteristics, and you say, oh, this is interesting. There's a charge, you know, the heart hurts. And, uh, and then you can go from an open attention to a directed meditation. And it's not even like you have to direct. The attention is going to want to look very carefully at that pain in your heart. It's relevant. So now you're doing a directed meditation or one-pointed practice, right? And you're really getting interested in that one experience. And, you know, you're kind of like uh, a willing, to, a willingness to be right in the middle of it. Like, what is this? What is this experience? The same thing we're doing with the breath. It's a mystery. The breath is a mystery. And that pain in the heart, that anxiety in the heart, it's a mystery too. And to the degree that there's enough interest and uh, the effort, we're not like trying to get into the middle of it in order to make it go away. So you have to, again, you have to really observe the quality of the effort. Am I focusing on the pain because I want it to go away? Or am I focusing on the pain because there's an interest in na- the nature of it? You know, what is this? And you really see the blending of the open attention and the one-pointedness. I mean, that's a perfect example where there's elements of both. You're using that reflection on dukkha, on the stress, and uh, the impersonal nature and the changing nature, because that's what you find as you look more closely at the pain. You find that it's changing. You know, initially when we notice the anxiety, it feels like a static thing. I'm anxious. You know, it's like set and stone. I'm anxious. But when we look at it more directly, we see, now there's sort of a, it's almost alive, the anxiety. You know, it has movement to it, and it becomes more interesting. And it starts to feel like, um, really, almost, uh, you know, as the attention gets more subtle, almost like we're going to be consumed by it. So it really uh, depends on a fearlessness. You know, we'll only have as much fearlessness as we have. And then we might need to withdraw and redirect the attention to some other object because maybe we can't stay with it. But I think it's really important to not see that as a problem, but just expect that along the way that we're going to be opening to experiences of discomfort, whether it's loneliness or anxiety or deep neediness. And it won't even be about, it may initially seem like it's about this situation in my life, like I have to move or something. But then you realize, no, it's actually not even about that. That anxiety about needing to move was one thing. And as I followed that feeling, I realized there's this great ocean of anxiety. Like background anxiety, background fear, background neediness. And this is, <clears throat> this is the interesting thing, and this is a good place to end, maybe. But we think, you know, generally in idealistic terms, that I want to get to Buddhist heaven, you know, where everything is peaceful and equanimous and I'm not bothered by anything. But we don't realize that the way to freedom is going to hell. You know, by going to hell and not being afraid of it, we realize the heart, the mind, that's fearless. So by opening to everything in life, absolutely everything, 
everything in terms of our internal, subtle experiences of anxiety, externally, all the messes in our lives, the unresolved things in our lives, aging, death, uncertainty about money, uncertainty in our relationships. By, the, by opening to absolutely everything, we realize the heart, the mind, that can open to absolutely everything, that is fearless with absolutely everything, that's willing to respond to absolutely everything. So, this is the great irony. I just love this about this path, that it really takes us into life. We need our lives. We need the messiness to realize the practice. You know, the, the great archetype is, you know, a, a woman or a man will run away to the monastery, you know, ordain as a nun or a monk, you know, and live a pretty secluded life. And then, just as the practice is really developing, they're put in charge of the monastery, you know. And then they got to interact with all the lay people, and they got to train all the younger nuns or monks or... They have all these responsibilities, build them, have the latrines built and the new cabins built and worry about is there enough money. And, and so that's the whole point. Like, well, you have some peace, you have some contentedness, you have some wisdom. Well, how about now? You know, how about in this situation? Or as I think it was Jeff Carfield said, you think your practice is going well? Go visit your parents. Maybe some of you are going to be doing that tomorrow. Or your relatives you don't want to be around. And then see what it's like to be in that situation. Can you manifest the wisdom and the compassion effortlessly, joyfully in that situation? So this is our test. I'll just take a moment, let go of the words. Maybe take a breath or two together. And adventure, this awakening, and not shying away from our intention to be more mindful in life, to be more clear, more relaxed, more undefended as we live our lives. And may this be a cause for real peace and happiness in our hearts and in the world. And thanks again, everyone, for coming. Wishing you all a Nice holiday tomorrow, and thanks to Katie, our program host. She has a few announcements, and then we'll be done. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.